welcome to our Sunday class again. Uh, still on the same planet. October 20th. No. October 20th, uh, 2019. And we, we are in Los Angeles at Holmby Park. So uh, we're continuing to read the list of avatars. And uh, we begin with First Canto, Chapter 3, Text 25. Which is Ataso Dyuga Sandhyayam Dasyu Prayeshu Rajasu Janita Vishnu Jashaso Namna Kalki Jagatpati. So this is the uh, this is the avatar Kalki, who comes at the end of Kali Yuga, when the conditions, if possible, are even worse than now. I mean. It's almost inconceivable there will be a worse leader, but uh, somehow there will be. So this verse says, Atta, then, Asel, uh, the Lord, Yuga Sandhyayam, at the uh, conjunction of Yugas, at the uh, juncture, uh, because it will be the end of Kali Yuga, the end of Kali Yuga, and then Kalki will, Kalki will uh, basically close up shop, sort of, there'll be a time of destruction because the world will be uh, just absurdly degraded and uh, degraded not only in the sense that, uh, you know, in terms of people's personal habits, but in terms of uh, violence and uh, lawlessness and just, It'll just be a horrible place at that time, the end of Kali Yuga. And so Kalki will uh, remove from the game all those people who are just sort of hopelessly evil at that point in time. I mean, no one is eternally evil, but some people are real good at it for a temporary time. And so... Um, so Dasyu Prayeshu Rajasu, it means the kings, this may sound like today, I mean, it doesn't sound worse than today, but it said the, the kings or the leaders, the uh, leaders of the world will be Dasyu Prayeshu. For the most part, they'll simply be thieves. Dasyu, sort of just criminals. I mean, just criminals will be leading the world. Again, that doesn't sound very shocking, does it? It just sort of sounds like what's already going on. But... Um, and then Janita Vishnu Jashaso Namna Kalki um, Jagatpati, the Lord of the Universe, named Namna with the name Kalki, uh, will take birth from Vishnu Jasha. That's the name of his father. So this this gets into a whole area of uh, you could say of theology, not only in our in our tradition, but in almost all traditions, and that is prophecy, prophecy. And uh, it has a mixed record historically. As we know, <laughs> a lot of times people claiming to be speaking for God prophesize things and they don't actually happen. So prophecy has a mixed record in history. And sometimes the prophecies are actually come true. For example, one that we have, for which we have historical evidence is in the Old Testament, Jeremiah, who, uh, of course, you can say it was prophecy or just, you know, someone in the country had common sense. 
and that is uh, Israel was conquered by Babylon, which was the reigning power at that time. And uh, at that time, when, when Babylon first conquered Israel, they didn't destroy Jerusalem. In fact, they allowed the Jews to remain in Israel and simply send tribute. So that's in really how the, uh, for the most part, that's how the pagan world functioned. They didn't have the notion of totalitarian regimes often in the sense that, I mean, again, these are generalizations which have exceptions. But in general, if you look at Roman conquest, if you look at uh, the Greeks, if you look at, uh, to some extent, the Persians, uh, and certainly the Babylonians, um, to conquer another country meant it, it was a it was an economic victory, because the conquered country then would pay tribute, and the conquering country would would get rich. And of course, obviously, it was in the rational self-interest of the conqueror not to devastate the conquered country because then you not get any money if you if you break the economy of a country you conquered you're going to lose a lot of money so it's in your rational interest to keep the conquered country reasonably prosperous not too prosperous because you don't want them to raise a powerful army so it's just kind of keep them prosperous keep the tribute coming but uh, don't allow them to uh prosper to the point where they can afford to hire mercenaries and perhaps you know defeat you so so this is basically how the world functioned not everywhere i mean you get exceptions like like attila the hun who just sort of broke all the rules you just kill everybody and then if anybody's left you take whatever money they have so um so jeremiah in ancient israel was considered a prophet and when Babylon conquered Israel the Israelis wanted to organize an uprising there was a king there was still there was like a client king who ruled Israel you know a Jewish king that ruled Israel but had to send the tribute so the people wanted to defeat the I mean really bad idea terrible idea to you know we're gonna declare war on the Babylonians because there were like a thousand times more of them so they did. So Jeremiah kept urging everyone, this is crazy. God does not want you to do this. If you revolt against the Babylonians, you're really going to be sorry. And so a lot of Jeremiah's prophecy was about this. It was a prophecy and it came true. Uh, in Israel, the people did revolt. They were smashed by the Babylonians. And that's when the Babylonians actually destroyed the Temple of Solomon. Which, which is very unfortunate because not only would it be like one of the world's leading religious symbols, but I mean, anyway, I'm not going to talk about tourist attraction, but the Solomon's Temple, which was magnificent, was destroyed by the Babylonians in the second attack when Israel had re revolted. So some prophecies do come true. I mean, in Christianity, of course, there have been prophecies about a second coming and, and those have not come true. Originally, it was supposed to happen immediately. For example, in the New Testament, uh, half, not half, but a, a lot of the New Testament, nearly half is, is the letters of Paul. Different Paul. <laughs> and um, basically answering letters he's receiving. He's receiving letters or he's trying to, because he's organizing the Christian world. He's like the first Christian GBC. 
and uh, he has the big zone. And, and you know, typical neophyte, you know, whether it's neophyte ISKCON, neophyte Jesus movement, when you get new people in a religion, they tend to fight with each other and they're not always so mature. And so, um, so he's writing all these letters to make sure that people also, he doesn't want uh, doctrinal drift because the first followers of Jesus were, um, according to the New Testament, illiterate. That's why it took a few generations to get a New Testament because in the first couple generations, there was no one that could write one which is a historical problem because of course in those days when nothing's written down the longer you wait obviously the more likely it is exponentially so the more likely it is that you're going to get uh mythology rather than real history but in any case um in any case um so for example, someone wrote to Paul, we know this because we have Paul's answer, not the original letter. Someone wrote to Paul asking if he could get married. He wanted to get married. Because in the early Christian community, there were a lot of married people, but not everyone. So Paul wrote back, the answer is very interesting. Paul wrote back and said, uh, why bother? Because marriage was a big entanglement in those days. It was a, in those days, and even up really until a couple hundred years ago, marriages involved a, a, an alliance, and that's what they call it. If you look at, for example, English literature 200 years ago, it's very common to call a marriage an alliance. And so you have an alliance between two extended families. So it's really like two tribes getting together, and it's, it had major, major uh, financial consequences, political consequences, social consequences. If you marry up, you rise socially. If you marry down, you go down socially. So, so, and, and it was a marriage, really, it was an alliance, as they called it, between two extended families with very, very important consequences. So marriage was, not like nowadays, like people just get married. <clears throat> um, so anyway, someone wrote to Paul saying, should I get married? And he said, why bother? Why go to all that trouble? Because the world's going to end. And even in the New Testament, Jesus, I mean, you know, if Jesus really said this, we have a quote in the New Testament where Jesus assures every, his followers that before some of you died, in other words, while some of you are still living, you will see the judgment day, which means the Son of Man will come, this kind of New Testament jargon. The Son of Man will come and there'll be an apocalypse, which meant that basically God is going to reboot humanity human society god is disgusted by because people are not strictly following the true path therefore god's just going to hit the the you know reboot button he's going to wipe out humanity the good will be saved the wicked will be punished and all that and so and so jesus whether he actually said this is quoted in the new testament is telling people that during the lifetime of some of his followers they would see this and of course it didn't happen paul said it was going to happen so in the early period of Christianity, people had these uh, powerful apocalyptic expectations. And that's why they took such risk. That's why people, you know, martyred themselves because they thought the world's ending. So then, of course, it didn't happen. And then, you know, periodically, there's a new rapture prophecy. <laughs> and there's even those books left behind, which are, I don't know if you saw those movies. There's one with, um, 
Nicholas Cage. Anyway, it's kind of funny, but what? Well, that's where he's an airline pilot, and there's another plane coming toward him. And as the two, and it's dangerous, and as two planes pass, he sees, oh my God, there's no pilot in the other plane. And the reason is the pilot got raptured. But anyway, not the best movie, but I guess he needed the money. So, but in any case, so there's a history of of prophecies that didn't come true, and that's the Judeo culture society that we're living in. So here we have a prophecy. And and we're teaching this prophecy in a in a in a Judeo-Christian Western society that doesn't always have the highest opinion of prophecies. I mean, even you know non-religious prophecies. I remember there was a big thing about Nostradamus, and you know, and that there'd be a huge earthquake in California would fall into the ocean, which by the way is terrible geology. If you understand tectonic plates, you know, one plate doesn't fall into the ocean. But anyway. So a lot of people moved out of California, and even some devotees, because you know it takes all kinds to make a Hare Krishna movement. So some people actually moved out of California because because Nostradamus says the new city would be destroyed. And I mean, technically, there's hundreds and hundreds of new cities all over the world. And then there was, do you remember what was it? Y Y two K, or that? And you know, devotees, non-devotees. So false prophecies or just failed prophecies are, uh, they're all over the place. And so here we have a prophecy. And, uh, and of course, we believe this is really true, but it's, um, but you can't prove it. I mean, the nature of prophecies, you can't prove it. And usually by the time you find out it was true or false, the person who preach the prophecy has been long dead anyway and so um but still there it is i think it's just and the reason i'm mentioning all this is because we're trying to teach krishna consciousness within a particular society and so i think it's just good to be aware of the attitudes that people have and and the attitudes are not entirely unreasonable uh, i mean to be reasonable doesn't mean to be right it just means a normal person could reasonably come to a certain conclusion whether it turns out to be right or not. But still, that will be the end of Kali Yuga, and, um, and then it'll be happy times again. It'll be Satya Yuga, the age of truth, and uh, I guess, you know, there'll, there'll be vegan restaurants again. So, uh, the next, any question about those points? Oh my God! Did I? Yeah, I did hit the, I did hit the play button. So we are broadcasting. I thought maybe did I forget to do that. Okay, so I'll go to the next verse, uh, which is avatara. So that that concludes the list of avatars which is very famous. I mean, if you know anything about Hinduism the, the, or Vaishnavism, the Dashavatara is the great, and here, of course, we have more than 10. So actually, there is something I could say about avatar philosophy in general. The word avatar, which now means, of course, an avatar in our culture is a uh, someone that saves some, you know, exoplanet from greedy earthly capitalists by 
that's the movie avatar but the word avatar ava, ava means uh downward and tara means crossing so avatar literally means crossing down and it refers to uh some special soul it can be god it can be an individual soul who receives some special power from god and they cross from the spiritual plane into the material world or into our in, onto our planet and so that's what it means crossing down and what's interesting is if you study the history of india or the history of vedic culture that when you when this crossing takes place that some divine being crosses down into our world into our dimension and then the uh it actually opens a channel so it's not you know, for example, let's say you fly from Los Angeles to, I was going to say Chicago, but I, I wouldn't wish that on anyone. But let's say, let's say you fly somewhere, say you go to Chicago, and it's not that you create some channel. I mean, you're here, and then you go there, and it doesn't change the atmosphere, really. Whereas when an avatar comes down, it actually opens a channel to that higher realm, and that's why the same word, the word Tara, comes from the Sanskrit root uh, tur, which means to cross. And from that same root, you have the word tirtha, which means a holy place or a, or a place of pilgrimage in, in, in Sanskrit and in India. It's very common, tirtha. And so it literally means a crossing. So, so that when someone crosses down and opens that channel, then people who come into contact with that avatar either by living at the same time and directly having contact or simply going to a holy place, that, that, that place where the avatar lands or where the avatar performs certain activities, that place becomes a tirtha where you can cross the other way. So it's, it's two-way traffic. The avatar comes down, opens a channel, and you can cross back up to the spiritual realm. That's why people go to places like Vrindavan and Mayapur, because the channel is still open. So that's what an avatar is. Um, interestingly, I mean, if you go back to the Greek, the, the literal Greek meaning, uh, sort of the, you could say a similar idea in, uh, in our language and culture is a charismatic leader. Because charisma in the Greek originally meant someone who has received some kind of divine gift and therefore speaks on behalf of God or on behalf of the absolute or whatever. So the notion of a charismatic leader uh, in the original sense of the word is related to the word avatar. Anyway, so having given the list of, oh, one more comment about avatars. Um, in Vedic history or Indian history or Hindu history, whatever word you use, I mean, we're not Hindus, but um, still it's sort of like a, a, a rough term that gets transmits the idea. Um, this awareness of the fact that Krishna, specifically Krishna, comes down to this world as an avatar. And of course, there's much literature about it. it it's, it's a central part of the whole Vedic tradition as it manifested through history, as it manifested in history among people, Vaishnavas or Hindus, this idea that God comes in, in, in many ways, sometimes very playfully, sometimes seriously, 
you know, reestablishing as Krishna. Krishna explains his avatars in the Gita in chapter 4, where he says that yada yada hi dharmasya glanir bhavati bharata, whenever dharma, which also means justice, justice and 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 the rule of law not uh ruled by the whims of tyrants and 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 not uh i mean some bad th there, there's some documentary going around around right now uh claiming to prove it's done by by scholars it's done by people in you know that that have certain credibility that in China they they arrest people who criticize the government or just behave in undesirable ways and then they sort of harvest their organs they sell their organs on the black market so it's I mean that's an example of really bad government you know something like that actually happened so so that would be that would be an example some you know if that actually is happening that's an example of a dharma a dharma meaning just uh, not treating people fairly, not treating people properly, abuse of government, tyranny, uh, or anarchy. So all of that is a dharma. And Krishna says, when this a dharma, in other words, when you have terrible governments that are that are abusing people, uh, sometimes in the in the most violent ways. Uh, stealing, creating artificial poverty by corruption, and and so on and so on. Or when there's a lack of government and it's just, you know, you have, like for example, the collapse of the Roman Empire. Europe basically fell under the control of these regional warlords, and uh, there was no law. It's not like, well, if I just pay my taxes and follow the law, you know, I'm okay. No, you could there there was no way to protect yourself because there was just these rampaging violent warlords even you know things got so bad there could be just you know gangs of murderous thieves and bandits it was just it, it was it was pretty awful and then finally um first country the first region to actually kind of get itself together more was gaul now called france and then of course Charlemagne, who sort of restored law and order, and you know, that's a whole story, Charlemagne, <laughs> Carolingian Renaissance and all that. But um, so Krishna, so when Krishna is saying whenever Dharma uh, is collapsing, he doesn't simply mean when, whenever people join the wrong religion. Uh, sometimes the word Dharma is translated as religion, like Sarva Dharman Pratyaja. The word Dharma doesn't mean a religion, in, I mean, the academic term would be a sectarian religion which means sort of an organized group of people claiming they have the truth and other people don't have it and so that's not what Krishna's talking about Krishna when Krishna says yada yada he's he's not saying like give up Christianity give up Judaism give up he's not, he's not talking about organized religions he's talking about uh, duties principles because justice means also you have duties for example, you not only have a right to be treated fairly, you have a duty to treat other people fairly. Because ev everyone just claims their rights and no one recognizes their duties. Well, basically you get the modern world. So anyway, um, so Krishna says in that sense, when Dharma is collapsing, then yada yadahi dharma and abhyutanama dharma and adharma is rising, then Krishna comes paritranaya sadhunam to save those who are basically good people 
and vinashaya duskrit and, and and to eliminate those who are abusing society abusing other people so that's the purpose of the avatar and uh so the and of course krishna is the original avatar and because this avatar tradition became so popular and uh so inspiring to people in South Asia, even around the world. For example, the biggest Krishna Vishnu temple in the world is actually in Cambodia, Angkor Wat. And uh, you find these the sort of depictions, either engravings or paintings of, of even of, of the avatars, really even thousands of miles from India. So it actually, this avatar theology spread uh, far and wide. And uh, so other traditions in India, like, for example, the Shaivas, those who worship Shiva, or the Shaktas, those who worship Shakti, the goddess, they thought, well, you know, we want to have avatars too, because, you know, if you want to stay in business, you've got to, and everyone's buying your competitor's product, you better find out what your competitor is selling, you better do that. And so they tried, and so they tried, to, but, but the interesting thing is, and, and this is sort of an answer to those who think, oh, this is just mythology, people made it up, which is sort of the, that sort of methodologically atheistic academia. And it, it's it, because it was the influence of, uh, I don't want to have too much into the history, but very quickly, you have this oppressive religion that went on for centuries, you know, inquisitions, crusades, I mean, really horrible stuff, and, 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 and a lot, lot more. And it went on for centuries and centuries and centuries. Finally, sort of educated people, intellectuals, concluded that religion is really the enemy of, of, of humanity. It's the enemy of progress. I mean, Marx says it's the opiate of the people, like... Unless people are drugged out of their mind, they, they couldn't believe this stuff because it's just it, it because it just causes them to be exploited. Because people are religious, therefore they become vulnerable to all kinds of exploitation. Freud said that it's actually a you know it's a psychological disorder to believe in God. Uh, Gibbons, who wrote this in, in the nineteenth century, it was a very important book. To, decline and fall of the Roman Empire, and he concludes the Roman Empire collapsed because it became Christian. And she become religious, it destroys your civilization. And it goes on and on and on. So this is coming from all sides. Because of the awful history, intellectuals in Europe concluded that religion is sort of the, you know, it's the enemy of progress. It's the, uh, it destroys people's ability to actually be reasonable and scientific. And, and of course, this was a dialectical reaction to very bad religion. And it's actually running out of gas. That's the point I wanted to make. Uh, it's a little windy, so I'm going to uh, put on my very stylish hat. By the way, all, all these things I'm wearing are for sale today. <laughs> and so, just kidding, that's a joke. So, um, it's, it's like, how should I put it? I mean, here, here's a simple example. Let's say that, 
let's say you, you throw a ball against a wall, you're playing something like, like racquetball, which people used to play. Let, let, let's say you hit a ball against a wall, and, that, and, so, and so in dialectical terms, you have a thesis. In other words, a thesis or the status quo is the ball is moving at a certain velocity in a certain direction, and that's the status quo. And then suddenly there's this very dramatic antithesis. It hits a wall. And then the, and so the antithesis is the ball, you know, for every emotion, there's an equal and opposite, uh, every action, equal, opposite reaction, things to Newton's third law. So it hits this wall and it bounces back. And the more the velocity in the first direction, the greater the velocity and force when it bounces back. And so that's just a simple, and, and so this works, you know, it's also called the pendulum effect. And it also happens uh, historically. So, you, so the worse, the more oppressive a religious tradition is, the more violent the reaction against it. And that's exactly what happened in the Western world. And so this, this idea, which philosophically is actually kind of stupid, that the natural worldview or the natural philosophy of science is atheism. In other words, in order to do good science, you have to be an atheist, is, of course, it's terrible philosophy. It ignores the historical fact that for, for most of the time that science has existed on this planet, for most of the time science has existed, um, mo most of the great scientists and great discoveries were done by religious people. You know, whether it's Newton trying to prove God by his physics, or, you know, how did Copernicus discover that uh, the solar system is uh, uh, heliocentric, not geocentric. Everything goes around the sun, not the earth. How did he, you know, what was his motive? Well, well, first of all, the motive was that uh, he was trying to come up with a better, more accurate astrology. <laughs> because, you know, you need good calculation. But also another motive was that the church, the church actually wanted him to figure it out because just like, for example, uh, you know, we have our Vaishnav calendars, which are just really lunar calendars. It's not a Vedic calendar, it's really a lunar calendar. And um, and so you have to calculate when's a codice because you're supposed to fast from grains on a codice. So, so if you get the wrong day, then you're fasting on the wrong day. Or let's say we celebrate Janmashtami, which is Krishna's appearance day. But what if you do it on the wrong day because your calendar is off? You just, you're just, you get the wrong. So, so it's important to religious people to do things on the right day. And what happens is there's something called uh, precession, which is that the, um, the zodiac, all the constellations are going around, but as they go around, they, uh, they, there's, they lose something. They lose like, like every so many years, they actually, they don't come around exactly in a year. And so over a period of a thousand years, like because at that point they were still using Ptolemaic astronomy in Europe, which went back, you know, a couple thousand years or maybe 1500 years. And so because of this uh, precession, all the dates were off. And, and the church knew that because, for example, let's say some holy day is supposed to be on, on a full moon day, but it's not the full moon. So everyone knew that we haven't got an accurate calendar. So they asked Copernicus to figure it out. It's interesting, you know, what was really going on. And so Copernicus was inspired by Plato because Plato was a super intellectual for 
really since he wrote his books up until the modern time. And Plato talks about the sun as being God somehow. And, and even in our books, you know, the sun is the eye of God, and the Brahma sun. So the sun, even in pagan traditions and in, in Vedic traditions and in Europe, the sun has always been kind of a symbol of, well, it is a symbol of light because it's the source of all the light we've got down here. So the sun is a symbol of light and light is a symbol of knowledge. These are like eternal metaphors in every civilization. And, and it's the source of life. And so, you know, the sun is a, is, is a great metaphor for God. And so it was actually inspired by this religious idea that Copernicus looked into the heliocentric model. He was inspired by the, I mean, the very idea that the universe is rational. Because if you believe, if you believe that we live in a universe which is chaotic, which is just basically dead and unconscious, and we sort of have the curse of being the only conscious beings around, and therefore we have to live in this extremely depressing knowledge that everything around us for you know trillions of miles is dead, and there's no gods, no one really cares about us, so no matter how much you suffer, no one that matters really gives a damn, because anyone that may care about you, they're gonna be dead very soon anyway. Of course, this sounds very much like atheistic French existentialism, but um, so the other idea that no, actually we live in a rational universe. In fact, why do they have ology at the end of all the sciences, except astrology? Scientists are actually so unhappy that the wrong people got the astrology. They actually still haven't gotten over that. And they're stuck with the word astronomy because all the other sciences have an ology word. You know, which shows you in ancient times they cared more about astrology. But anyway, so we have biology and physiology and geology, which are just Greek words, you know, geo, you know, geo, you know, the earth. So geology, the science of the earth, biology, bios in Greek means life, science of life, of living organisms. So why did they put ology at the end of all these words? Because it's a form of logos, logic. And there was a very popular idea in the pagan world, which caught on in Europe with the Renaissance. It came back with the Renaissance and became very popular among intellectuals in the West. And that is that ultimately God, the source of everything, is a supremely rational being. You know, not some crazy guy that will torture you forever if you join the wrong church or something. You know, basically, and almost like it, you know, the worst psychopath imaginable. But actually God is a completely rational being. And the word they use for that divine reason in the mind of God is logos. And because this world is a creation of God's logos, that supreme reason, that supreme intelligence, therefore the creation the creator invests that logos in the creation. And therefore we live in a world which is rational, which is lawful, law-abiding, because even, for example, physical things obey the laws of nature. And because we are also cre creatures, we have the logos within us. That's why we are capable of being reasonable and intelligent. Not very popular nowadays, but anyway, we're capable of it. So... Therefore, with our logos, 
which, which is the divine spark in us, we can study the creation and discover the logos in the world, the logos of physical things like geology or of living things, biology, and so on and so forth. So the very notion that the universe is lawful, rational, that the same laws which operate here operate on other planets, it's an assumption. Because that's the nature of law. God's a perfect lawgiver. And so science was born from a belief in a rational creator. That's actually where science comes from. So, but still, anyway, I could go on and on and on and on about how, you know, most of the great scientists in history were actually religious. But the point is that this atheistic science, this philosophically absurd assumption that the best metaphysical view, the best philosophy uh, to govern science is atheism or materialism, it's philosophically absurd. It's running out of gas. It's like it's like if you throw a ball against a wall, it ricochets, it, it, it rebounds at the same speed, but then it just, it's going to fall at a certain point. That's it. It's energy. So in the same way, if you remove the cause, the effect gradually dies. And so the cause of atheistic science and atheistic philosophy, which was abusive religion, and religion which would which really did in, in many cases stifle the free use of human reason that cause is no longer present at least not in the west i mean there are certain certainly are countries in the world where you have oppressive suffocating religion but not in the west and therefore if you remove the cause the effect gradually diminishes and dies and that's actually what's happening because nowadays there's um if you keep up with contemporary intellectual history there's a growing powerful revolt against materialism in the name of science and it's there's like hundreds and hundreds of scholars who teach at the best universities you know these are all people with their phds these are serious scholars scientists neurologists biologists philosophers all kinds of people who are revolting against the notion that to be a good scholar, to be a good scientist, you should be materialist, a materialist and an atheist. And people are re realizing that that's philosophically absurd. And I won't go into all the details of it. That's another talk, but it is. If you work out all the technical philosophy, it's absurd and self-contradictory. So, um, how did I get into all that? But the avatars, so, uh, so I'll, I'll just go back to this verse here. And it's what time is it? Okay, we're going to uh, end fairly soon. So, having finished the list of avatars, uh, now the Bhagavatam will give us some general statements about avatars. These are just general statements about the category of avatars. Avatara hyasankhyaya. The first statement is that avatars are actually innumerable. Because, of course, here we got a list of... Uh, about 19 or something or 20 avatars but I mean, it's, but then it says these are this is just a sample actually the avatars are literally innumerable asankhya innumerable hare the avatars of hari of krishna satvanidhaya who and and hari is the ocean of satva I mean goodness 
can also mean pure existence. So Hare Satvadidvija and Yatavi Dasina Kuliaksara Satsusa Hasra Shaha. Just as from a uh, from a major source of water, innumerable or or just endless streams and currents come. So in the same way, because this is very interesting, because if you look at the ocean, the ocean produces just endless waves. There's endless waves coming from the ocean. And so in the same way, Krishna is an ocean of pure existence and goodness, and therefore endless avatars come from Krishna. So that's the first point. This is just a, a little sample, but actually the avatars are innumerable, and they come endlessly. And then the next statement is, uh, well, actually, I'll save the next statement for next time. So, any questions? If you have any questions here, my live audience, got a live audience. Yes. Um, I don't know if this is necessary to know, but I'm just curious. When Kali Yuga ends, is there like a period of nothingness, or just you? Okay. The question is, when Kali Yuga ends, is there a period of nothingness? No, because the Earth is still here. The end of Kali Yuga doesn't mean the Earth blows up. It just means the conditions change. So, anything else? Yes. Regarding the avatars, when they appear on the world, do they necessarily have to come to a Vaishnava tradition? Do the avatars necessarily come to a Vaishnava tradition? Or can you get avatars in other religions or in people that have no religion? That kind of, right? Right, yes. Interesting question. Um, interesting question. One thing we can say is there is a category called Shaktyavesh avatar. See how much battery life I have. Yeah, I'm fine. It's maybe bad news for you if you're hungry that I have a lot of battery life left. <laughs> so, um, there's one category called Shakti Avesha, which is also very much like the charisma thing. Shakti Avesha means uh, literally investing. In fact, it's cognate, invest Avesha. And so, where the Lord invests his power in a, in a soul who's not God. A soul is not God, but that soul receives a special empowerment to do God's work. Someone like Jesus, you could say, is Shakti Avesh. So anyway, um, so in that sense, we can definitely see that in uh, in many religions, almost in, almost every religion that really, every religion that really became influential, that became, so to speak, a world religion, uh, I think in every case it's because someone had uh, some some shakti, someone had some power and, and was able to persuade a lot of people that uh, God is speaking through me or the truth, capital T, is somehow speaking through me, whatever that means. And um, so, yeah, I think I think without that, without that presence of someone, now you could say, well, there's false religions, but really, do false religions really last? I think if you study history and what you find is that, I mean, for example, the idea that uh, we should kill everybody that doesn't join our church, I would say that's a false religion. I mean, in a false religion, they can say, well, but we believe in Jesus or we believe in Muhammad or whatever, Allah. Yeah, you can have certain principles which are which are acceptable or valid, but one can interpret valid principles in a way that's actually false and evil so let's say for example someone claims that 
Jesus is the son of God or Krishna's God or, or whatever you know, these well-known claims so if someone says therefore uh, we should kill everyone that doesn't agree with us that's evil that's false religion even if you were quote-unquote inspired by an idea which we could one could say arguably is a valid belief but the interpretation is evil and false so I would say that if you look at history it's an interesting question uh, really false let's let's say false religions in that sense not false in the sense that that's not my religion but false in the sense that in the name of God people just do non-controversial evil then in that case I, I think it doesn't last usually for it, it can be coerced for example if you kill everyone that doesn't believe as you do or doesn't join your church you can get a lot of you know you, people lining up to join your church if the alternative is to be tortured and killed but once you remove the coercion once you take away that coercion I think what history shows is people don't buy it and what we're seeing now and sort of frankly in the West we're kind of living in a post-Christian world in the sense that there are still many Christians of course and many of them are good people but it doesn't dominate our political social cultural institutions and so I mean to some extent obviously you could there's all kinds of arguments how our whole uh, notion and system of jurisprudence of laws uh, goes back to, to the Judeo-Christian tradition but it also goes back to the classical world the Romans for example that's why we have a Senate because the Romans had a Senate that's that was their word and that's even why the British Parliament they have a House of Lords and a House of Commons that was the Roman system the Senate was the House of Lords the Assembly was the House of Commons so how should I put it with the overthrow of, of absolutist monarchy oh, sorry about that with the overthrow of absolutist monarchy uh, there was a very conscious move in the Renaissance of course earlier but in the Renaissance and the age of reason the age of and the age of enlightenment to go back to pagan institutions because the Christian institutions tended to be oppressive dictatorial and therefore people consciously went back to pagan institutions to create democratic governments and uh, and universities and all kinds of things and so um, so fanatical religion fanatical violent abusive religion does not have a long shelf life uh, when you take away the coercion and so if you if you look at the surviving principles for example the notion that uh, Jesus is the only way is not surviving uh, you know several years ago they did a survey among Christians all kinds of Christians Catholics Protestants just the, the whole thing and they found that two-thirds of Christians believe that people in other traditions can go to heaven so the notion that this is the only way has not does not it's not really surviving in a free society if you have a calamity let's say there's a nuclear war or or just maybe another four years of Trump anyway but 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 let's say if, if you get circumstances that are really bad and people are desperate starving or oppressed or whatever 
sometimes they go for extreme solutions or they'll they'll go for extremism but under normal times when people are not being coerced either by some government by violence or just by chaos when they're not coerced people do not tend to choose fanaticism and and therefore i think it's fair to say if you look at the highest principles in all these different religions you know because they they do have their better side then that does tend to come from someone who you who arguably was an empowered representative of god so that's the answer to the question deluxe answer but so any other question yes a little louder Okay, let me, uh, so we live in a three-dimensional world and the concept of the world collapsing is moving into a fifth dimension. What's the fifth dimension? That's a good idea. Well, yeah, yeah, the, 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 the sort of sociopathic leaders they are driving a lot of people in, in another direction, so maybe that's good. Although not enough yet. Actually, uh, I do with my. I had dark glasses, but I can't find them. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Oh, I put them in my. So uh, let me see if there's any questions here on Facebook, and then we'll be able to end this. Uh, let's see. No questions today. So we're good to go. Thank you all very much. My live audience. I got a live audience. <laughs> so so thank you all and thank you everybody uh, on Facebook. Thank and hope we'll see you all next week. Hare Krishna.